Hey, welcome everyone again. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders here at uh, Liberty Church. Um, hope you've enjoyed our service so far. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, uh, or you can look this up on your phone, there's loads of Bible apps you can download or just search in Google. If you want to find the book of 1 Thessalonians, which will be uh, in the, the New Testament of your Bible, so towards the back of the book, uh, and the letter of 1 Thessalonians is uh, what we would call an epistle, a letter that the Apostle Paul, who was one of the early leaders in the Christian church just after Jesus' death and resurrection, he wrote a letter to this very young church uh, in a city which uh, was known at the time as Thessalonica, uh, Thessaloniki now we would know, it still is the second biggest city in Greece and it was an important city in Greece or Macedonia was, as it was known then 2,000 years ago. And this was a brand new church that had just been started there. You can read about how the church started in Acts chapter 17. Uh, and in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes them a letter to encourage them and strengthen the church for the future that God had ahead for them. And it's a helpful book for us to read, in, particularly in this season, for us to receive the strength and encouragement that we find in Jesus Christ for this season that he has ahead for us, his church here in Amsterdam. So we're going to read just two verses from the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, which uh, just verses 9 and 10. Uh, so we're going to watch a video just now, which Simon is going to be reading those verses to us. Over to you. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols Thanks. to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, that was a very short reading, so welcome back. Just managed to sit down on my stool in time. Hopefully I won't fall off. Um, the, for the people, the citizens of the city of Thessalonica, even today, uh, you can look across the water, across the Aegean Sea, and on the coast on the other side, probably about 50 miles away, you can see uh, towering over above the city, Mount Olympus, which is the biggest mountain, uh, it's a series of peaks, but the biggest mountain in Greece. And in Greek mythology, Mount Olympus is where the 12 Olympian gods were supposed to live. It was their, their seat, their throne. So uh, Zeus and Apollos and Aphrodite and all the other gods were all supposed to live there. And if you've been living in that city 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this letter, they would have had this mountain looming over them and it would have been a constant daily reminder of the gods, the, the idols in their city, which were very much worshipped. There would have been uh, temples all around the city to these ancient gods, uh, which they weren't so much places of worship where people would gather, but they were built as homes. So you wouldn't necessarily go into them, but temples where the gods could go and be. And there were also uh, temples in the city, not just for Greek gods, but for various different Egyptian gods as well. Uh, also, the, the city would have had a lot of Roman influence at the time. And 
Caesar, the Roman emperor, was also very much treated like a god. There would have been a, a temple even for Caesar in the city, and you would have obeyed his commands, his edicts, his instructions, the, the rule of law, not just as an act of obedience in society, but as an act of worship to your emperor, to your king, to your god. And all these different idols that were very much alive in their minds at the time, they, not only did they require worship, but they dictated so much of their life. The calendars that they would live by from month to month, their daily different activities, um, all of this would have ordered their, their life. So in Acts chapter 17, where we read about this church being planted, where it says where there, uh, Jason who'd been hosting Paul and the other guys who'd started this church, and when they're dragged before the authorities to explain what they've been doing, the charge that's put against them is they were acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. What that basically is saying is that all the idols, all the worship that they were supposed to give in the city, they turned their back on that. This was an act of revolution to turn against all the instructions, the ways of life in the city and to go their own way, to follow another king. Not all the different kings and idols in the city around them, but another king, Jesus. And idolatry at the time would have been a very real issue. The Bible speaks about idolatry a lot. It talks in Romans chapter one about how idolatry is the exchange of the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. Idolatry is the worshipping of replacement gods. It talks about it in the, the Ten Commandments, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Because for the, the Israelites, the people of God, for these Greeks and uh, Jewish believers in the first century, there would have been so many other gods to uh, draw them away from the one true living God. The writer Tim Keller says, what is an idol? Is anything more important to you than God? Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God? Anything you seek to give you what only God can give? So not was Idolatry wasn't just an issue for 2,000 years ago, but it's an issue today. Anything that we seek to give us what actually only God can give us, anything that, that takes, tries to take the place of God becomes a replacement God for us, a counterfeit God. And you might say, idolatry today? You know, really, is that true? You know, we don't, we're not sitting under the view of Mount Olympus. We're not each day looking at uh, having our eyes drawn to all sorts of different temples and idolatry in our city. The, the German poet uh, who lived a few hundred years ago, Henrik Hein, he, he, talked, he wrote a poem about, called Gods in Exile. And he, he talked about how the gods have been forced to take flight seeking safety under the most varied disguises and in the most retired hiding places, but all these pagan gods will rise to dance again. 
You see, maybe 2,000 years ago, the, the idols, the false gods in society, would have been much more obvious. They would have had their own temples. They would have had their own liturgical rites, ways of worshipping them. They would have been very superstitious. And now, perhaps, the idols around us aren't quite so superstitious anymore. They've now become sophisticated. But they still exist. They've gone into hiding and they've put on various disguises, but they've come out to dance again in the city around us. They affect all of our life. And lots of the recent philosophers of the last few hundred years have talked about how there's a transcendent thread that runs through all our lives. The philosopher John Gray said that even modern, modern politics is essentially just a chapter in the history of religion that politicians become idols of worship because they promise to bring us the solutions. They promise to bring us hope and a future and change. And we idolize them as bringers of deliverers for us. If we're not careful, politicians or political systems or ways of thinking could just become things that we worship. And in many ways... Uh, lots of people who claim to be very secular, that means to be without God in their, in their thinking, are actually just anonymous believers. They might not believe in the one true God, but all of our lives are dictated by lots of different things. Later in Acts 17, after Paul had been in Thessalonica, he has to, uh, he gets kicked out of the city, he has to run away, and later in Acts 17, we find him in the city of of Athens, and when he arrives in Athens, he spends a little while exploring the city, and then he says to them that, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And I think Paul or any of the uh, biblical voices, if they were alive today, if they turn up in our city, they would look at our lives the way we live and say that in many ways we're very religious. There's all sorts of religions and idols that draw our attention, draw our affection. We all worship something. Tim Keller went on to say, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. We all worship something. Whether you're watching this and you're a follower of Jesus, whether you've never been to a church, you've never opened up your Bible, you've never prayed, we all worship something. And perhaps our idols today are a bit more sophisticated, we'd like to think, and not uh, at least less superstitious, but they're still directive in our lives. They still shape what we do from day to day. Jesus puts it very bluntly in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And Jesus spoke those words, and they're just as true today as they were when he first spoke them. That you can't serve God and 
something else that's trying to replace or usurp or take over from God. And that's what things like money will do in our lives. We might not go to the, the temples or worship some golden statue representing money, but money will affect you. It will shape you. It's an idol that it can be a good thing, but if you're not careful, can become a God thing in your life. And for these first believers in Thessalonica, to the language it uses where we read it, is that they, they turned to God from idols. That idea of turning to God, a moment of conversion, a moment of decision, a moment of repentance, is an incredibly revolutionary step. It was for them at the time. It would have been risky. Christian worship would have been illegal, dangerous. They're described in Acts 17 as men who turned the world upside down. And they didn't mean that. They weren't congratulating them. That was, that was a threat. They were angry with them. They were threatened by them. This was a revolutionary thing to put your trust in Jesus. Might have ended up costing you your life even, as it did for many of Jesus' disciples. And even today, actually, to put your trust in Jesus might not be as dangerous in the same way, but it's still a revolutionary step to turn to God from idols. The idols of our time, of our age, will still be risky, will still be dangerous. Because it means that you'll have to turn your back on some of the, the norms in our society, some of the things in our culture, in our city, that are accepted as normal behavior, you'll have to say, well, that's, that's not actually what the Bible says. If you suddenly say, well, look, I'm not, you know, I'm going to give some of my money, I'm going to give it to the church, your friends will probably think you're crazy. And it is a bit crazy, to be honest. Or in your attitudes to sex, if you say, well, I'm not, I'm not just going to use my body as a, as a commodity. I'm not just going to use it for something just to give me pleasure, but I'm going to treat sex as a sacred, as a, uh, as a beautiful thing, as a gift that God's given us, but to be used in the context of marriage. And I'm not going to worship the God of sex, but actually I'm going to say the, the intimacy that I crave ultimately is found in Jesus Christ. But I'm not going to be dictated to by what the world around me says, but I'm going to find the intimacy that I need in my walk with him. That when it comes to how I treat relationships, I'm not just going to love people as long as I get something back from them, but I'm going to sacrificially love people because ultimately that's how I see Jesus loving us and he's my example for life. And to do all these things, to live a life as the way the Bible maps out for us might not be illegal, but it will be a bit weird, a bit dangerous, perhaps. People won't understand you. People will think you're odd. People will question even your, your motives. People will perhaps even attack you for certain things that you do or say or believe. But we don't want to have our lives guided by what the changing zeitgeist, the voice in our city says as it changes from year to year but we want to hold on to the truth that the Bible gives us, not as a book of 
laws and procedures, a book of life-giving hope, a book that tells us about who God is and how he can wonderfully, ultimately change our lives. And to turn from idols to the one true God is not just culturally risky, but it'll be a risk for your heart as well. You might have that doubt within you of, can I give this up? Might be a way of life. Might be a certain thing in your life that you think, can I really give this up? Can I really turn from this thing to God? Can I really make that sacrifice? Can I really serve another king? Well, it says in Jonah chapter two in the Old Testament, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. There might be a nagging doubt within you that wants to cling on to some idol, some thing in your life that promises you so much, but it's a vain hope. It's a vain idol. And true hope, the hope of steadfast love, is found only in Jesus. Because although it might feel risky and dangerous and scary, for the, the tone that this passage uses in 1 Thessalonians, it almost sounds easy. It sounds easy for them. It was almost as if nothing had happened. Well, we read Acts 17 and we realize, no, something did happen. They were arrested. They were dragged before the city authorities. They were threatened. Paul and Silas had to escape. Definitely something had happened. But for them, it was as if nothing had happened. It is as if they'd suffered no evil at all. Which in a sense is true. That they'd discovered ultimate joy, peace and satisfaction. So all the vain idols around them suddenly just disappeared into nothing when they discovered the one true living God. See, and it doesn't just say that they turned away from idols to God, but it goes on to say that they, they did that so they could serve the living and true God. See, it might seem a bit scary to turn to God, but what actually matters most is what you're turning to, that we come to this living and true God and the idols that might promise you so much but deliver so little are, they're just counterfeit. They're pale imitations of the real thing. In Psalm 96, it says, all the gods of the people are worthless idols. 1 Corinthians says, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. The idols around you might still have power, but they're weak and worthless compared to the living and true God. See, Jesus rescues us and calls us into serving him. He rescues us from slavery and he calls us into service, which might sound a bit like the same thing to you. But the reality is we're all made to worship something. 
And what happens when you become a follower of Jesus is you move from being an idolater, someone who worships false idols, that you turn to a worshiper, someone that worships the true God. Romans chapter six uses the language that we were slaves to sin and now we're slaves to righteousness. And again, that language might scare you a bit. You know, I don't want to be a slave to anything. What a hideous thing to think of. But you see, in the city around us, there is a freedom of sorts to be had. There's a liberty even in sin. But there's no lasting joy there. This is what it says in Romans 6. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So you had a freedom, but it was a freedom from righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. The freedom that our city offers us, perhaps that might be even the greatest idol in our city, is this promise of personal autonomy, of individual freedom. It's like a vapor. You will grasp it in your hands and as quickly as you feel you've had it, it will have gone. It will have disappeared from you and it will offer you no lasting fruit. And actually what it will do, the freedom that our age offers us will cripple you because the freedom that we hear all around us is that there's, there's no moral or ethical or spiritual absolute. There's no objective truth. There's no one thing that you can build your lives on. There's no ancient book or belief system that can tell you anything. You can do whatever you want. You can think whatever you want. You can believe whatever you want. You can be whoever you want. Everything is stripped away. All these ideas and ways of thinking, they're just tools of oppression that have been removed from us now. But when you believe that, when everything becomes subjective, by that I mean that you can just decide for yourself who you want to be, what you want to believe, what your life is going to look like, that will actually become a terror to you, not a joy. It's almost as though you have too much freedom. But when you have to decide everything yourself, it, it will cripple you. That's why if you look around our city, look around the world at the moment, there's so much anxiety and worry and fear, particularly amongst many young people, people in their teens and 20s. They're crippled by fear because all the time they're, they're told that they have to know who they are. They have to know what's right and wrong. They have to decide it. And if we don't know, we need to learn more to, to give us the information that we can decide it. And that just becomes crippling for people. Because essentially we're telling everyone that you have to be your own God. That you have to submit to what your heart says because you have this personal freedom. But it will let you down. There'll be no lasting fruit there, no joy. 1 Samuel says, Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are 
empty. All the promises that idols of your life will make, whether it's personal freedom, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whatever it is, it's, it's empty. You must understand that. They are empty things. It's not that there isn't good there. There's, there's, sex is a beautiful gift that God's given us. Money is a wonderful tool we can use to bless and serve others. Freedom from oppression is a wonderful human right that we must hold on to. But when those things become bigger than God, when they become replacement gods, they become empty, vain things that will give you no joy. See, because in Ephesians chapter six, it goes on to say, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. See, that might seem like a big step to make, and it is a big step to make. It's a risky, revolutionary, dangerous step to say, I'm not going to be a slave to sin. I'm going to live as a slave, a servant, a follower of Jesus Christ. These are dangerous decisions to make. But what it leads to is sanctification, which might sound like a confusing biblical word, but what that means is you'll become more like Jesus he will pour his grace and power into your life and little by little he will transform you from the inside out. That there will be a lasting, beautiful fruit and joy and happiness in following him. In saying, actually, I'm not, I'm not free to do whatever I want. I'm not free to decide everything I need for my life. Actually, I have an obligation now. I have another king, Jesus and I'm going to serve him. And in, in living a life of wonderful submission to him, I find true freedom and liberty. The passage that we read finishes by saying, not only do we serve the living and true God, but we wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. See, being part of the kingdom of God includes both serving and waiting. We serve with our hands, we get involved, we love, we bless, we serve the church, we serve our city, and we wait with our hearts. We wait with a wonderful hope in our resurrected king. See, and our, our serving will not deliver us because Jesus has already done that. Our resurrected king delivers us from idolatry, whom comes to set you free. It says in Romans 6 finishes by saying, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Today you can, maybe you've never done this before, that you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus. You can accept his gift today. You can turn from all the idols in your life that promise you so much but deliver so little. And you can accept the free gift that he offers you of his grace and his love and eternity with him. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus. You've been a Christian for many years. Again, come to him today and say, God, I just, I need you. It might, you may feel like there are certain idols around 
that are trying to draw your attention away, that you feel like you've become a bit of a slave to money again, that you're constantly assessed with how your bank balance is doing, you're gripped with worry about the future, what the future might hold, whether your job's going to be secure, what implications that might have for you and your family. Come to Jesus again. Come and receive his love again, his strength again. He's for you, he's with you. And we pray for us and I'm gonna hand over to the band. Jesus, we thank you so much for your phenomenal grace that enables us to turn from idols, but it's not just a turning from, it's not just a leaving the good life behind, but it's a turning to the good life, a turning to the living and true God, our wonderful resurrected King Jesus. And I pray for all of those watching now, either watching live or watching later on today or this week, I pray that right now as they're watching this and for us here in the room today, you would flood us with your grace again. The Holy Spirit, you would come and give us all that we need to worship you, the one true living King, the only one who is worthy of our worship and praise and that in you we would find the freedom and liberty that can only be found in you. In Jesus' name, amen.